We are in our study of the book of Genesis, and we're working our way through chapter one, which we are going to finish today. That's right, on week number seven. And you guys do need to hold on, because next week we are going to get done all of chapter two in one week. And I hear the skepticism, but with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. It's going to happen. Chapter one details the famous creation week, the six days over which God created everything. And then it was followed by a seventh day of rest, and that seventh day of rest will actually come up next week in chapter two. Last week we took a look at the creation of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets on day four, sea creatures and flying animals on day five, and then land animals on day six. And this week we're gonna pick things up on the sixth day by taking a little bit of time to talk some more about the issues with Darwinian evolution and the pinnacle of God's creation mankind and there is so much I could say about the, the problems with neo-Darwinian evolution. I said a little bit last week, but I'm gonna just try and highlight a few things. I feel obligated to hit on it a little bit without making it the center of our focus today. So if you'd like to read more thoroughly on the subject, I put a note at the top of your outlines there. I recommend a book called Darwin's Doubt by Stephen C. Meyer. He's a brilliant thinker and a scientist who writes very, very knowledgeably on these issues. So take a look at, at my watch and I want you to think about where I might have got it from. And you might be thinking probably a store or, or maybe, maybe it was a gift. That's a very, very good guess. But you'd be wrong. You see, billions of years ago, out of absolute nothingness, there appeared a tiny subatomic particle that developed and grew into organic material which continued developing until incredibly it developed into all the unique individual parts that, that make up a watch and then it sprung to life. It came alive with energy and found its way to my bedside table one evening. Now everybody knows intrinsically that what I'm suggesting is, is completely impossible. We all know this. Even if I said that Whoa, 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 okay, okay, so I understand that's hard to believe, but what if I told you you could have an infinite amount of time to work with? So, so you could give this process as much time as it needs to unfold. Would that change anything? Wouldn't change anything, wouldn't make it any more possible, even if I said, well, well just, I know it seems improbable, but give it a billion trillion years and, and see what happens. It still wouldn't solve the problem. So what if I said, okay, we don't even have to go back in time. We can start now in a universe in which all of the parts for this watch actually already exist. Like there's actually a Casio factory somewhere and all the parts for this watch are there. So what if we started that now and we had all those bonuses and I said, and you can take as much time as you want. I said, without any interference, if there was no man, no intelligence or anything like that, could all the parts of the watch come together and the watch materialize on my bedside table? And even with that, we would say, well, well no, that, that wouldn't be possible. Someone would, would have to put it together and ship it and, and move it. And that is with all the pieces needed already in existence. And yet our culture believes that not merely a watch, but absolutely everything in the physical universe came into being 
out of nothing, and then from a basic starting point, developed all the way into conscious, intelligent, self-aware human life without any guide or programmer or intelligence involved in the process. And I say it that way because sometimes we forget in the, in the nitty-gritty of scientific debate, we forget to take a step back and just look at it and just think about what Darwinian theory is actually saying. And I would suggest to you that, that even on the most basic level, the very premise of it is absolutely ridiculous. The very starting concept is completely ludicrous and fails even the most basic tests of logic. Even a child would be able to tell you that that's impossible. Everything can't come from nothing and then develop intelligently and, and with order. There's just no way. And so what I was thinking about this week is that you have to step back and, and ask the question, so how does an idea, just an idea, this ludicrous become the mainstream accepted scientific theory on the origins of life? Like how do, we, how do we get all the way to the point where people not only believe that, but they say, if you don't believe that, then you're the idiot. How do, how do we get all the way there? Like the multiverse, it's so obviously, so self-evidently illogical. And the only explanation for such theories gaining so much social traction and acceptance is the presupposition on which the theories are built. We've talked about this before. A presupposition is having an existing idea, an existing conclusion that you take into a project or a task with you. So imagine you go shopping and you're a guy and you have a modicum of good taste and you just know I should not be buying short shorts. I should not be doing this. You have a presupposition when you go shopping that you're gonna buy some shorts but you know you're not gonna buy short shorts because you're a good person, okay? A presupposition is an existing idea that you take into a task with you. And scientists, even though they love to rave about how objective they are, they have presuppositions. And the presuppositions that went into the theory of evolution and things like the multiverse are the reasons that we get such crazy ideas because the presupposition is this. We must come up with explanations for the origins of the universe that do not include God. That was the presupposition. We've gotta come up with a way to explain how everything exists that doesn't include God. Theories like evolution and the multiverse, they're not good theories. They're not our mainstream scientific working theories because they're the best theories. It's because they're the best theories we could come up with that don't include God. And when you actually take a step back and look at how illogical things like the theory of evolution and the theory of the multiverse are, you have to say, you know, you know, it really points to how credible God is as an explanation when this is the very best alternative explanation that we can come up with. You know, it's sort of like a kid who gets caught eating an ice cream and there's an ice cream wrapper on the floor and they say, well, you don't know that someone didn't break into our house in the last 10 minutes eat the ice cream and throw the wrapper on the floor. You don't know that. You were, it could have happened. And it's like, well, it's so ridiculous. Yes, it could have technically happened, but it's so ridiculous. There's no way that's what happened. It's not a good theory. It's just the best theory we could come up with that doesn't include God. And if we as human beings are gonna be genuinely engaged in the pursuit of truth, then we're sabotaging our efforts any time we exclude certain possibilities before we even examine the evidence. 
And that's where Darwinian evolution came from. It came from a man who wanted to examine the world without God in the process anywhere. So we went into it determined not to see God. And this is still a huge problem in the field of science. There's many ways in which science is limited because God is excluded before the evidence is even examined. And you just can't be a good investigator in any field when you put limitations on knowledge that way. And there are naturalistic and materialistic presuppositions undergirding mainstream science today. As we'll discover in our study through Genesis, man's desire to be his own God goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Eden. Now what evolutionary theory did was it empowered a worldview in which God did not exist. So in other words, if we can come up with a system of science that doesn't need God, then we can justify not believing in God and then we won't be accountable to God. We won't have to answer to God. And when you strip everything away, that's the driving force behind evolutionary theory. We wanted a worldview that empowered atheism because it would philosophically free us from accountability to God. So even though the theory is, even at its most basic level, ridiculous to even a child, we embraced it because man wanted a way to ignore God and be his own God instead. That's what it all goes back to. You know, at least in the times documented in the Bible, the pagans worshiped false gods. Still awful, but at least they attributed creation to false gods. It's a whole nother level of blasphemy to say there's no God, no creator at all. That is, that is a whole nother level of deterministic thinking that is so determined to ignore God at all costs in the face of overwhelming evidence. It's worse. And don't ever forget that there are spiritual dynamics in play, even in the field of science. As I mentioned last week, Romans 1 and 2 has a lot to say about what happens when a person makes up their mind that they want to ignore the evidence for God. And it's pretty terrifying because Romans 1 and 2 say, God will let you do that. In fact, God will allow you to deceive yourself so that you think you're brilliant and you can't even see the most basic and obvious things. It's a pretty terrifying passage of scripture. So again, keeping things brief, I'm just gonna highlight a few of the, the many problems with neo-Darwinian evolution. In the first couple of messages in this series, we talked about the fact that every field of science, every field of science recognizes the second law of thermodynamics, except for biology except for biology. Every other science recognizes that the universe is in entropy. It's moving from order toward chaos, complexity toward simplicity. The universe is running out of energy. The sun is dying a heat death slowly. There is no new energy being created anywhere in the universe. The universe is slowly dying. Every field of science recognizes the binding power of the second law of thermodynamics, except the field of biology, which wants to embrace the complete opposite, believing that life can arrive from no life, energy can arrive from no energy, complexity can arrive from chaos, the complete opposite. Secondly, also in one of our earlier messages, we talked about fossil discoveries of, of things like soft tissue and blood cells in dinosaur fossils, which science knows cannot survive more than a few thousand years which leaves no explanation other than those fossils being only a few thousand years, which creates an enormous problem 
for the timelines that biology uses, especially evolution that says we needed millions and millions and hundreds of millions of years for species to evolve into other species. That creates a huge problem. Thirdly, one of the, the biggest problems with neo-Darwinian evolution is the existence of present-day animals with characteristics that are essential to their survival. In other words, animals we have on the planet today that, that have body parts or behaviors that they could not survive without. In other words, if they didn't have these things, they would just die. And these animals are a big problem for evolutionary theory because evolution says those characteristics and body features would have evolved over millions and millions of years. But there's something very, very important to understand about dead animals. They don't evolve. They're just dead. A creature that pops out is born and doesn't have the ability to eat because it hasn't evolved the right functions yet. The creature that pops out and can't defend itself just dies, it just dies. It doesn't die while yelling to its children, try something different next time, maybe a beak. That's not what happens. They just die. And so I wanna make sure that, that you're tracking with me here. Animals that rely on certain functions and body parts in order to survive wouldn't have had the time to evolve because they would have just died out. Have you noticed when you, when you pay attention to species that are in danger now, we're always being told how fragile the world is and if, if we don't make changes or preserve these animals, they're gonna die out. But we have animals today that they wouldn't have survived one generation without evolving the functions and body parts they have today. There's no time to evolve when you're dying because you can't eat, you're dying because you can't reproduce, you're dying because you're being eaten by other animals immediately. And while there are seemingly endless examples from the animal kingdom I could give you, I'll give you just one. The sonar functions of the dolphins. Dolphins are, are almost constantly emitting clicking sounds or, or whistles, you know, like from the Flipper TV show, the that sort of thing. So the clicks are, uh, that was a very good dolphin impression. That was the majority of my teaching prep this week was working on that one sound right there. You're welcome. The, the clicks are, they're short pulses actually of around 300 sounds per second. They're sending these sounds out and they're emitted uh, from a mechanism that's located just below the blowhole. And so these clicks are used for the echolocation of objects and they resonate from this part called the oily melon which is just above the forehead and it acts as as an acoustic lens so it transmits this out and then it bounces off objects at 300 sounds per second comes back and is received in the area the lower part of the jaw that's connected by a fat organ to the middle ear the sound comes back the jawbone picks it up transmits it up to the dolphin's ear and then based on the way the sound bounces back, slightly different frequencies, slightly changes, slight densities, the body of the dolphin does all these advanced calculations and tells it that means there's an object with this density, this distance away, that object with that density is probably another fish, that object is probably a piece of coral, that object is the seafloor, it does all of that automatically. And so the dolphin is completely dependent upon this fully functional system to eat, to survive, to navigate, to do all of those things. It's a system that's completely useless unless it's fully functional. It would be like trying to fly a plane completely in the dark, relying on radar that's only 10% evolved. You are 3,000 feet above the ground, maybe, or maybe you're three. 
No, in fact, most of our pilots die because this isn't really a fully evolved system. But don't worry, I'm sure we're going to figure this out before all the pilots die. You, you won't. Especially if you were to say, don't worry about it, we're improving this system all the time. We expect to have a fully functioning radar system that will let us fly in the dark in about 400 million years. So just hang in there, I'm sure everything will work out. So if evolution were true, the dolphin would have died out long before it had the time to develop all of these internal mechanisms. And there's endless examples of this in the animal kingdom. Animals that are completely reliant upon certain skills, certain behaviors, certain body functions and features in order to survive, and there would have been no time for them to evolve. They would have just died out. Fourthly, there's a shocking lack, a shocking lack of transitionary fossils in the fossil record. When I talk about transitionary fossils, I'm talking about fossils that show one species changing into another. Now, Darwinianism says that species evolve into other species over millions or hundreds of millions of years. And if that were true, we should be finding transitionary fossils all over the place, all over the place. In fact, the majority of fossils that we find should be transitionary in nature. And yet, what we find is the exact opposite, the exact opposite. Most of the, the fossils that are found in extremely rare situations and presented as being transitionary in nature are much more logically explained as simply being deformities or random abnormal mutations that didn't get passed on. It would be like finding a human skeleton of someone who has a third arm and going, ah, here is the transition from human to octopus. It's like, no, it was just a dude born with a third arm. There's nothing else going on. Maybe you should examine the hundreds of millions of other fossils of people with two arms. Maybe that's what's going on. And then you have millions and millions of fossils of octopuses. Maybe these are just two different species. Maybe it's not one changing into another. You can, and uh, there's just a shocking, shocking lack of transitionary fossils. Shocking. It doesn't make any sense based on what evolution says is supposed to have happened. They should be all over the place. Last week we talked about the fact that the very first cell would have required DNA, RNA, and protein in order to come into being, and yet each of those requires at least one of the other in order to come into existence. And the point we realized there is that the first cell had to come into existence simultaneously. So it had to arrive all at once at the same time. It couldn't evolve piece by piece because each of those three pieces is completely dependent on at least one of the other pieces in order to come into existence. And then I'm going to mention this one here because this is interesting to me. Junk DNA. Junk DNA. In the genome, the genetic code of an organism, whether that's an animal, a person, or a creature of some sort, there's DNA. And, and DNA is essentially the code that tells the cells of an organism what to grow into and how to grow into that thing. And even when genetic information isn't active in an organism, it's still there in their DNA. It's just set to the off position. Everything in DNA coding is ones and zeros. It's either in the on position, a one, or the off position, a zero. That's called binary coding. The non-functional DNA, the DNA that's parts that's set to off, is commonly called junk DNA. So the idea is this, if you, if you had a grandfather who had blue eyes, but you don't have blue eyes, in your DNA, there is a part of it categorized blue eyes. 
and it's just set to the off position. And so everything in your DNA that's set to the off position is considered to be junk DNA. It's non-functional right now. So based upon neo-Darwinianism, after hundreds of millions of years, billions of years of evolution, the human genome should show a massive, massive amount of junk DNA. So if you went through the human genome and our DNA, there should be essentially our evolutionary process tracing all the way back through there. We should, all the way back to monkeys and apes and even back before that, that should show up in our DNA, sort of like our genetic history. Well, in 2003, scientists first completed mapping the human genome. And based on their research, they estimated quickly that, that only 2% of DNA was functional. And this got evolutionists really excited and, and they quickly said, this is exactly what evolutionary theory predicted. Our DNA is 98% junk left over from our evolutionary past. Since 2003, however, further research significantly changed our understanding of the genome's functionality. And after the genome was mapped, the National Human Genome Research Institute launched a, a public research consortium called ENCODE to try and identify all the functional elements of the human genome. And in 2012, a series of papers published in the science journal Nature reported that the project had found evidence of function for at least 80% of the human genome, not 2% as previously thought. And they discovered that much of the DNA believed to be junk actually performs critical functions like determining which genes get turned on, which get turned off, and directing when and where those genes are going to be turned on and off. And in this field, research is still ongoing, it's still contested, it's still emerging, but the one thing that's become very obvious is that the genetic history that should be in our DNA according to evolutionary theory is not there. It's just not there. And if we had the knowledge of DNA that we have today, when Darwin was putting his theory together, his theory never would have got off the ground. It's the main reason that evolutionary theory is collapsing today is that the DNA science doesn't back it up at all. And then lastly, I shared right now and last week that DNA is digital code. It's binary programmed information. And the difference between code and randomness is that code has intelligence and order in its programming. And what that means is that you can't have a code without a coder. It's absolutely impossible. And Darwinism cannot explain the origin of life because Darwinism cannot explain the origin of information. It can't explain why things came together in an intelligent, cohesive, ordered way. You can't have order without intelligent. You can't, intelligence, you can't have any type of complexity without intelligence. And when you examine the complexity of things like cells and, and body organs and animals, Darwinism simply cannot account for where the information and intelligence came from. All that to say there's very real and valid scientific reasons for not believing Darwinian theory and, and those reasons are so logical and so obvious that the mainstream scientific community is moving away from the theory of evolution right now. So I just wanna get that out of the way and if you wanna dig more into that, get the Stephen Meyer book that I mentioned. But just know that as a believer, you don't have to say I don't believe in evolution because I'm a Christian. You can also say, I don't believe in evolution because it's bad science. It's not true. It doesn't add up. And always be encouraged and, and, and remember that as a believer, you are serving and following the truth. Jesus identified himself as the truth. So we will never find ourselves in the place as believers of having to say, well, you know what, that might be true, 
but I have to believe Jesus. Because believing Jesus always means believing what is true. It doesn't mean that the culture will always be there. But everything that Jesus says, everything that the Bible says is true. And so the reason that we believe what the Bible says is because it's true. The reason we follow Jesus is because he's true. We don't say, man, I don't believe in evolution because I'm not supposed to, I'm a Christian. We say, well, no, because it's not true and I'm committed to the truth. Let's jump into the text. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter one. We'll pick it up in verse 26. We're gonna underline some things here. It says, then God said, let us, underline us, Make man in our image, underline our image, according to our likeness, underline our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in, underline his own image, in the image of God, underline God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So up to this point, Genesis 1 has followed the pattern of God speaking, creation taking place, and God approving of his creation by saying it is good. But here God deliberates before he creates. And this deliberation reveals that this next creation is going to be special and unique because man is going to be created unlike anything else in the unique image and likeness of God. There's no other part of creation that's described so specifically or uniquely. I don't care how much you love your cat or your dog. He is not made in the image of God. Only human beings are. And this is also the first place where we see plural verbs and pronouns used in the original language as it relates to God. So in other words, when you look at the original language and it, it says our image, our likeness, and you get into all that terminology, you find it really is a plural there for the first time in Genesis 1. It's not the case even in Genesis 1.1. What this reveals is that verse 26 is a conversation among the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So write that down. The original language in and around verses 26 and 27 points to a conversation between the Trinity. And they are the ones deciding we're gonna make man in our image, in our likeness. And some people try to argue that God is talking as well to the angels there and, and, and making man to be like the angels, but verse 27 makes that idea impossible because verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image, not the image of the angels, in the image of God being redundant on purpose, he created him. Man was made in the image of God, not the image of angels. And these two verses contain the doctrine known as imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. And it's important because men and women, as we said, are the only beings created in the image and likeness of God, the only ones. And we have to understand that we share traits with God that no other creature on earth does. And what might those traits be? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, I put it on your outline, the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, underline spirit, soul, underline soul, and body, underline body, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what the Apostle Paul does there is he identifies the three parts that make up a human being. I'm gonna go backwards and start with the obvious. First there's the body, the physical vessel that we inhabit. So 
God, therefore, has a physical body, and so do we. And the Bible tells us that after death, we're going to get a significant upgrade, a physical body that is perfect. It's never going to ache. It's never going to decay. It's never going to tire, and it's going to last forever. And the second part of us is our soul. And, And most theologians agree that the soul refers to the mind and the emotions, And then thirdly, we have a spirit, which refers to the eternal part of us, the part of us that's going to last forever and live forever, the part of us that will live forever in eternity in relationship with God or live forever in eternity in separation from God as the result of our response to his invitation of relationship. While animals obviously have physical bodies, and possibly even limited souls in some way, they do not have spirits. They're not eternal in nature. In the next couple of chapters of Genesis, we're gonna see free agency come into play. I'm speaking about the unique human trait of free will. You see, the human mind is is able to think back to the past and ahead to the future. We're able to think ahead and contemplate the likely consequences of our actions, and then we're able to make a free will decision. We don't simply act on our impulses because of programming. We have the free will to make decisions on a level that no other created being does, and we're gonna talk about that more in the coming weeks. We've also been created with self-awareness. This is perhaps the most significant thing. Self-awareness to the degree where we're able to ponder and debate and contemplate things like the nature of existence, the nature of reality. We're aware of the fact that we are here and we have self-awareness to the degree that we're able to contemplate things like why we're here. Not just functionally, but existentially. Why are we here? Why is anything here? We're able to reflect on our past actions, learn from them, make adjustments for the future. We're able to understand our place in the world and, and who we are and to question it in a way that no other being can on the earth. And while there's many more ways in which humans are unique among God's creation, I'm only gonna point out one more because it's one of my favorites. is Our capacity to appreciate beauty in the abstract is uniquely human, our capacity to appreciate beauty. We're able to find satisfaction and, and beauty in things that have absolutely no purpose and do not benefit us in any way as it relates to the survival of the species or our physical needs other than making us feel a connection to God. Why are we drawn to climb mountains? Why are we drawn to places that give us an amazing view? It's not like when we get up there we receive the power of flight and that's helpful to us. It's just a lot of hard work to see something. We've just used a whole bunch of energy and body resources to get there and there's there's no material payoff for us. Why do we drive great distances to see natural wonders like the Grand Canyon? Why can music with no lyrics make us weep? Why can art touch us emotionally? We were created with the capacity to appreciate beauty because it helps us appreciate and recognize God. And there's nothing in evolutionary theory that can explain why we find things beautiful that have no functional purpose. You could explain away finding a a woman beautiful or a man beautiful for purposes of reproduction. You can't explain why we would look at a painting or a mountain or a river and say that's that's beautiful. You just can't do that. There's, There's no reason other than God wanted us to be able to appreciate his glory and his majesty and his beauty.
So write this down. All created beings are, are not equal. God created humanity uniquely imago Dei. God created humanity uniquely imago Dei. And you're also going to see around these verses words like dominion. And we're told that God gave dominion over the earth to mankind. And, and the concept is simple. The Lord made mankind to rule over the earth. That was the original idea. Man was made for God and everything on the earth was made for man, for his enjoyment and for his benefit. And the concept is, is stewardship. It's the idea that God put the earth in, in the hands of man and said, manage this. Rule over this, take care of this, and know that it was created for you. But don't miss this, and do make a note of this. The earth was created for man, man was not created for the earth. The earth was created for man, man was not created for the earth. One of the ways we know this is because the earth is not gonna be around forever. It's gonna run out, it's gonna be destroyed one day and we're gonna leave. This is a temporary home for all of us. And so while we should steward the earth, we should not worship the earth. And while we should steward the animals on the earth, we should not worship the animals on the earth or begin believing that they too were somehow made imago Dei. I feel like that's not an issue if you're a cat person. Like you know that your cat is not made in the image of God, you know. Stewardship not environmentalism. We should take care of the earth the way we take care of our homes. Hopefully you don't worship your home, but you wanna do your best to take care of it and make it a good place to live because you know you're coming back there again at the end of the day. We should be the same approach to the way that we treat the earth. It's our home. While we're here, while we're living here, you should take care of it, but you don't worship it. It's not your God. Now take a quick look at verse 27 again. Do you see where it says male and female he created them? I just want to point out so you understand the order of events. It's not saying that God created woman on the sixth day. Genesis 2 is going to make that clear. Women were made after the creation week. They're mentioned here in Genesis 1, I believe, for two reasons. Just to make sure we understand, number one, God also created woman, but also because God wanted to make sure that when he said man was made in the image of God, he wanted to make sure that he mentioned woman there too so that we would know that women were also made in the image and likeness of God. You can imagine how if he didn't mention woman there, somebody would latch onto it and say, well, the Bible says man was made in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't say anything about woman when they show up in chapter two. It's just what the word of God says, you know? So God made sure to mention woman here in Genesis one, even though women are not created in Genesis one, he mentions them here because he wants us to know God also created woman and he also made them in the image and likeness of God. Now before we fell into sin, men and women were designed to reveal different characteristics of God. And when we're at our best, we still do that. For example, men reveal things when they're at their best, like God's strength, his desire to provide for his family, and his protective nature of those he loved. While women reveal things like God's beauty, his grace, his sensitivity, his caring and nurturing nature, and even his righteous jealousy for those he loves. One of the main reasons that men and women are different is because God designed us to reveal different characteristics of God when we're at our best. That's the big asterisk on that whole phrase right there. So write that down. In his original design, the differences between men and women revealed God's different characteristics. 
They revealed God's different characteristics, both made in the image of God. Now, just to clear something up, people are wondering then, so then is God neither man nor woman? It's like, well, he chose to identify himself in his word as male, but at a minimum, we know that the character of God includes the characteristics of men and the characteristics of woman. For example, the things that I've just described. He's not lacking in any way at all, and that's as clear as we can be about that. In verse 28, it says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Now underline this, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, now this is going to be controversial. And you all know how much I hate being controversial. Uh, But I want to point out, something very simple and obvious, and and write this down and we'll unpack it. Uh, Having children is a command from God. It's a command from God. God is explicit in his instructions to mankind. Be fruitful and multiply. That's a very, very clear instruction. And and man, if I'm gonna take someone off today, it's gonna be on this point right here. Now, I don't know how or when it happened, but somehow, having kids became an option for married believers. Somewhere along the line, it ceased being a command from God and became an option. And you could do it if you want to or not do it if you didn't feel like doing it. And I was blessed to spend several years in a church with a pastor and his wife, change my perspective on children by asking me the simple question, have you given the issue to the Lord? Have you actually asked him what he wants for your family? And you know what? Like most Christians, I hadn't. The number of kids that we were gonna have was based on a picture in our head. It was based on the size of the families that we came from before, and we had a paradigm from that. But the one thing we hadn't done, if we were honest, is we had never asked God, uh, what do you want our family to look like? How many kids do you want us to have? Like, what, what do you want this thing to look like? And the truth is that, that God hadn't entered into our decision-making process at all. And I'm, I'm not going to camp here for long either, but I'm going to share three quick thoughts on this subject. And the first is that the greatest missionary work that you can do for the gospel and for the kingdom of God is to raise children who love Jesus and give their lives to serve him. That's, that's it. That's the very best you can do. They will uh, outlive the impact that you're gonna make, they'll have a greater impact than you. You can have an exponential impact through your children as they pass it on to their children. It's a great, great way to serve the kingdom of God. Uh, Secondly, the Bible is clear that that children are a blessing. Not, not, Not to those who find them a blessing. Children are a blessing. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. And some of you might be thinking, uh, children are a blessing? Why? Why? Well, because like marriage, the Lord uses our kids to teach us about him, what he's like, and to make us more like him. This is why he made it a command, because his ultimate purpose in giving us children is to make us more like him and teach him about himself. And that's why he said it's a command, because he didn't want any of us who got married to have the option to say, you know what? I just think that learning more about the fatherly nature of God and and being made more like him is just not something the Lord's calling me to. 
It doesn't work when you, when you actually say it out loud like that. And I just read you the last three verses of Psalm 127. There's only five verses in that psalm and the first two say this and I want you to keep in mind that the context of Psalm 127 is kids. Now listen to the first two verses. It's also on your outlines. First two verses say, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. And here's the gist of what the psalm is saying. It's saying if you're trying to build a life, you can work hard and end up accomplishing nothing. Or you can do things God's way. And you know what God is doing? God is meeting the needs of those he loves even as they sleep. That's what he's doing. And when my pastor shared that psalm with me and he pointed out that the, the context is having kids, it, it changed my life. And he, he said, Jeff, you don't have to wait till you have enough money before you have kids. It's vain. You don't have to wait till you have a big enough house before you have kids. It's vain. You don't have to wait until you, you think you can handle it. He reminded me of one of the great truths of scripture, which is that faith only works one way. You step out in faith believing the promises of God and then God comes through. That's why it's called faith. Faith doesn't work where you say, okay, Lord, I'm ready to step out in faith as soon as you provide everything I need, thereby removing the necessity for faith. That's not, that's not what faith is. Faith is taking the step believing God will come through. And my pastor said, listen, read what the Bible says about kids and about how much God loves them. And you decide whether or not you believe that stepping out in faith and obeying God is going to ruin your life. You're gonna end up poor and homeless because you believe what the Bible said about kids. And it changed my life and we chose faith. And so if God has called married couples to have kids, it's a guarantee he's gonna provide for those who believe him. He's gonna meet your needs in ways you can't even imagine. He'll be working on your behalf even as you sleep. I got six kids, so I know what I'm talking about when I tell you it's true. Children are a blessing. They make you more like Jesus, whether you want to become more like him or not. They teach you about the nature of the Father. They will stretch your faith, and God will provide. He'll provide. And as the church, let's remember that according to God's word, married couples who can have kids, having kids, is a command. And I know that's awkward. I know someone wants to be like, sounds a little judgy. And I'm like, yeah, well, God made us, so he sort of gets to judge. If he says have kids, then that's how it's meant to work. And I know that there are Christians who don't do that. And I would just say you don't have an issue with me. You don't have an issue with me. You've got, you've got an issue with Scripture. And you've got to figure out how it could possibly be saying anything other than what it's actually saying. So what about birth control? Somebody's gotta be thinking, well, what about birth control? Well, I don't have a complete theological position on the issue, but I can't help noticing that according to Genesis 1, after six days, the Lord said, yeah, that's good, that's enough, that's enough, and I'm done now. Could the Lord have kept creating more? Yes. He could have kept going, right? He didn't stop because he was like, I can't make any more. I can't think of anything else. He had the creative power, but there came a certain point where he said, that's enough. Everything's here. Everything's here. And so God has given us the ability to create and to procreate. 
And as we were just talking about, my belief is that we're to first seek the Lord in that area of our life and ask him what he wants our family to look like and then to obey his will. But there can also come a time where I believe that the Lord says, okay, you've done what I've asked you to do with your family and now it's, now it's your choice. If you feel like you're done, you're done. If you wanna keep creating, you can keep creating. It's, it's up to you. And he gives us that choice. And so for now, our family as with the Lord's pattern, is complete at six. If we want to create something else, we'll take a pottery. That's where we're at right now. <laughs> Let me also say this. Now, now, if you're out there and you disagree with my theology on birth control and you have less than five kids, I don't care what you think at all. Come back and see me when you got five kids and we'll talk about the incredible ways in which your theology has evolved, right? We'll pick up the subject then. So... Let me just say this last thing too on the subject of birth control because I think this is important. Some methods of birth control prevent creation. Other methods of birth control destroy creation. There's a fundamental difference and I think there is a moral uh, an ethical issue there for the believer. And so I would just encourage you, if you are choosing to procreate but not create at this time, to really examine the method you're using because I think there really is a difference on, on a moral level there. So now, did you notice back in verse 28 that the Lord put this strange phrase in there when you think about it. It says, the Lord also told Adam to subdue the earth. Subdue the earth, that's an interesting word. Subdue it from, from what? Because this is before the fall of man. This is before sin has entered the world. So, so what did the earth need to be subdued from? It's a very interesting question. I would suggest that the answer is Satan. Because I would suggest he's on the earth there on day six. We know by chapter three he's there because he shows up in the garden. And we know that he ends up on the earth as a result of his failed rebellion in heaven, his attempt to become an equal with God. As a result of that, he's cast down to the earth. And so what it seems to be saying here is that one of the first tasks that God gave man was to reclaim control of the earth from Satan by living in relationship with the Lord, raising children to do the same, and taking on the responsibilities of managing the planet. And as he did those things, he would drive Satan from the earth. What does that practically look like? I have no idea. No idea, and anything I say would be pure speculation. You're saying that's never stopped you before, but I have really no idea even how to speculate on this one. I have absolutely no idea. I just wanna point it out to you because I, I think it's interesting that that word is in there. But as is always the case, God didn't need man, but he chose to involve man in his work on the earth. He chose to invite man to partner with him, to, to give man purpose. And because like any good father, he, he enjoys his kids being involved in what he's doing. And that's what God's gonna be doing with us in eternity. We're gonna be partnering with him in the work that he's doing in ways that we can't even imagine right now. But what about you and I today? How, how do we subdue our world today? How do we drive out Satan from, from our world? Not the planetary sense, but from our daily world, from our marriage, from our family, from our workplace. How do we drive Satan out? As Genesis 1 says, it's, it's by being fruitful, but, but not in the sense of kids, but in the sense of Galatians 5, which tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's love. And that verse goes on to tell us that Love is defined as joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the kind of love described in 1 Corinthians 13, the kind of love that can only come from the Holy Spirit stirring it up inside of us. That's how you drive Satan out of, of your world, is you live and you move and you operate in love, not in the kind of love that you have to offer, but the kind of love that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. So write this down. If we wanna see Satan driven out of our world, we need to be fruitful. We need to be fruitful. We gotta operate in love and we can't do that without the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 29. And God said, see I've given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there's life, I've given every green herb for food. And so it was. Verses 29 and 30 reveal a a shocking truth, one that, that I personally have great difficulty with, but must accept because I know that the word of God is a greater source of truth than my personal opinions. You wanna know what the shocking truth is? We were, we were created as vegetarians. That's how we started out. N- not only that, but all animals were vegetarian. All animals. There was no killing at all. And now some people get kind of funky with this and try to push the idea that because of Genesis 1.29, we should all be vegetarians. We should all be on, on the Eden diet, man. And if we were all still living in Eden, I, you know, I'd agree. But some things are gonna change in just a few chapters time. There's gonna be a catastrophic global flood that's gonna usher in a completely new ecosystem. And by the time we reach Genesis 9, the world's been turned upside down and animals that used to be vegetarians are now carnivores. And in Genesis 9, the Lord says this to mankind. It's on your outlines. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. In other words, just as I gave you all the plants to eat in Eden, I've now given you all the animals to eat as well. Please don't throw red paint on me after the sermon if you're an animal activist. I love animals, they're delicious. I'm just trying to obey the word of God. So does this mean that when Jesus comes back to the earth, to reign for the thousand years of the millennial kingdom and and return the earth back to its original state, its Eden state, does that mean that all of us, including all of nature, will return to vegetarianism? Probably, probably, yeah. How much would it take for me to give up bacon? Not much, just the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's all, that's all it takes and I'll I'll give it up, I'll give it up. Verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. Underline very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. After creating mankind, God says for the first time, not only is it good, it's very good. It's very good. And that concludes the six days of creation. And when we pick up chapter two next week, we'll pick it up on day seven, the day that God rested. Uh, You know, there's so much important stuff in Genesis 1. There's so much to explain and to seek to understand and to contemplate, but I wanna make sure we don't miss the most important things in this first chapter of the Bible. And there are some things that Genesis 1's not clear about, and in those areas we need to be honest that we're speculating and that the Bible's not clear about them. But more importantly, we need to be honest about the things that Genesis 1 is clear about. We need to embrace them, we need to believe them. 
So what are the things that God has made clear in Genesis 1 as we reach the end of the chapter here? Firstly, God is the creator of everything. He's the creator of everything. Mainstream science wants to say there was nothing and then it exploded. And the Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God felt it was more important that we know the who than we know the how. And he said, I want you to know the who that created everything is me. It was God. Genesis is also clear that he created everything in a specific order. He created everything in six literal days. He created instantaneously birds, animals, trees, sea creatures, men and women, not as single cell organisms or as a protein brought about through the process of evolution. He created them instantaneously. Men and women were the only creation made distinct by being made in the image and likeness of God. God made the earth for man, not man for the earth. God's creation was intended to bless men and women. God commanded men and women to have kids. And the world God created was good and naturally provided. And I just wanted to list those out to remind us, Genesis 1 is clear about a lot of things. It's clear about a lot. And as believers, we should also make sure that we're very clear about those things too. But among all the science and theology, I don't want us to miss the most significant truth. The most significant truth is this, that God created everything including you, including you. There's a God and he's infinitely powerful. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. He didn't create you because he was bored. He chose to create you. I can't stress enough the gravity and implications of that statement that God chose to create you uniquely and individually. He didn't set things in motion and say, oh, let's see where this goes. And then when you came out, go, ooh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Didn't see that happening. He chose to create you. He chose to create you. And here's why that's a big deal. Because it means that God wanted you to exist. Do you realize that? That God wanted you here. That's why you're here. He wanted you here. He created you to know him, to to enjoy him, to be a part of his work on the earth. You're not here because man biology happens. You're here because God wanted you to be here. He wanted you to be here. That blows my mind. And so if you're not knowing him, if you're not enjoying him, if you're not joining him in his work on the earth, no wonder your life feels meaningless. No wonder. No wonder you feel aimless like you're just passing time, but When the life you live lines up with the reasons you were created, then your life will have purpose. You'll have joy. You'll have peace. You'll have fulfillment. But when you're living a life that doesn't line up with the very reasons you were created, you're not going to find purpose. You're not going to find joy. You're not going to find peace or fulfillment. Most of you know this, and I love sharing it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it so perfectly. It says, man's chief end... The ultimate purpose we exist is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And St. Augustine said it like this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Until they find their rest in you. You exist because God wanted you to exist. That is so significant. You're not an accident. You're not trying to live a life to justify your existence. 
You don't have to live your life saying, I've got to achieve. People have got to know who I am. I've got to become something. I've got to become somebody to justify my existence or I won't matter. You know what your significance is? God wanted you here. God. God did. There's nothing you can do in your life that will make you more significant than the God of the universe wanting you to exist. That justifies your existence on a completely different level. And the incredibly good news is that God wanted you to exist so that he could love you, so that he could bless you, and so that you could enjoy a relationship with him forever. Among all the science, among all the theology, among all the texts, don't, don't miss that. The big point of Genesis 1 is that God created you. He made you. He made me for a relationship with him. And if we find ourselves living in a way where that's not at the center of our lives, that's why we feel restless. That's why we feel like the days are just passing. That's why we feel frustrated. That, that's why we feel aimless. We're just not aligned with why we were put here on the earth, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, forever. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you made us, you created us, you called us into being for a reason, for the reason and purpose of knowing you and, and enjoying you and glorifying you. And, and Father, we, if we're honest, it, it is astonishing the ease with which we drift from our very purpose for existing. And it is astonishing the the hours and days and weeks and months and years that we spend in a state of confusion as though it's a great mystery why we feel restless when we're not in relationship with you the way we could be and should be. Father, we just acknowledge that, that we were made for you and we ask that for every single one of us, even now, you, you would realign us with our purpose for existing. I pray for anyone who is wrestling with any type of depression or any type of self-esteem issues that, that they would find their answer in knowing that you are their creator. The answer wouldn't be that, that we are wonderful, but the answer would be that you are wonderful and you chose to create us and love us. And it's your love for us that gives us worth, that gives us value, that gives us significance. So would you forgive us when we have sought significance from anything else other than knowing you? And would you help us to turn to you to fill those needs, even this evening, Jesus? We love you because you loved us first. You loved us first. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.